Hello, welcome to Philosophy Gets Schooled. I'm Simon Kirchin, a philosopher based at the University of Kent, recording this episode in November 2023. This episode is about philosophy of mind and, in particular, property dualism. So we'll be thinking about what dualism is in general, we'll focus on property dualism in particular, and think about various issues that property dualism faces. And we'll also see what else we get on to, as always. Joining me in this episode, we have Ben Jones, who teaches philosophy at King Edward Sixth Form College in Stourbridge. Hi, Ben. Oh, yeah. Thanks for having me back. And we've got Dan McKee, who teaches philosophy at Warwick School. Hi, Dan. Hi, good to be here again. And Mabel Rowe, who teaches philosophy and religious studies at Botton Court Grammar School in Canterbury. Hi, Mabel. Hi, Simon. Uh, great to have the three of you with us. Okay, so we're going to talk about a significant position within philosophy of mind today, namely property dualism. Property dualism and other dualisms appear on the AQA A-level philosophy specification, which we're basing our discussion around. But if you think about studying philosophy at university, no matter whether you're doing A-level or IB or hires, it's worth listening to. This is one of a series of Philosophy Mind podcasts I'm running, so please check the others out too. So let's start with a basic definition of dualism. And in order to get into that, perhaps we'll do a bit of a tour of philosophy of mind and then into dualism. Um, and we know that on the AQA spec, this is called metaphysics of mind. Ben, do you want to give us a tour of philosophy of mind, please? Yeah, I suppose the way that you get into it or the way that a lot of students will kind of stumble into it or either through various specs or, or just from their own thinking will be the idea that you're very aware of yourself as a, as a being with a body. Um, and you're also aware of yourself as a being with a mind. There's the, the physical part of you and the mental part of you. And that's sort of, to begin with, kind of an uncontroversial way to describe who we are. There's the, there's the physical aspects of ourselves, there's the, the mental aspects of ourselves. And if I was to give an account of myself, well, you know, to be told, uh, you know, told to give as full an account of myself as possible, I'd give you sort of physical attributes, things related to, you know, my height and weight maybe, or my hair color. But then I'd also get down to things like my personality traits. So I might start talking about the way that I feel about certain things or the kinds of ways in which I react, whether I'm intelligent or whether um, I've got uh, particular um, strong likes and dislikes about things, whatever it might be. So it's pretty uncontroversial to say that we are kind of physical and mental. But what we then need to do is work out what we actually mean by the mental. What do we actually mean by the mind? What am I referring to when I talk about my mind? Now, the easiest way to do that would be to talk about the brain. So we could say, well, the brain is, is, is where my mind is located. But there's different ways of looking at that. And so one of the ways is that you, of looking at it is to say that really the kind of the, uh, the brain, as we understand it being the center of who we are, if you like, is really all there is, that you're going to take quite a monist attitude towards it. There's only one kind of stuff. There's only one kind of thing, and that's the physical stuff. And the mental can really just be purely explained in terms of the physical. So you go poking around in people's brains, working out what all the bits do, and eventually you'll kind of crack the code of what makes us what we are mentally as well as physically. However, the big long-standing view that kind of trailed on way before that was that actually you can't just do that. If you go poking around in a, in a brain, 
you don't find anything which either closely resembles all the thoughts and feelings and hopes and whatever it is that you might say about your mind. You don't find anything in there like that. Nor do you see anything in there that would be be able to produce something like that um, sufficiently, kind of like you wouldn't actually find anything which even seems to be close to being able to explain where the mind comes from. Um, now, we'll see that this is a bit more complicated today, but that's the general idea that you don't need to explain things in terms of one thing. You need to explain them in terms of two things. Therefore, there will be a dual explanation. You'll be a dualist. This was already kind of looked at in the, the last episode, with kind of substance dualism. But effectively, it's this idea that mind and body have to be explained in separate terms, that they, they are two different types of thing. And of course, then we've got our sort of wild card option, which will kind of look at that whole debate and say, well, we've been looking at it from the wrong angle. And that's your functionalists, ultimately, who are more interested in, if you like, what the mind does and how it is that that could be um, realized in, in multiple different ways, rather than trying to pin down sort of ontologically and metaphysically exactly what the mind is. But what we've been concentrating on is that dualist view, is that idea of what the mind is, is made of, if you like, does matter. You can't just ignore it. And what it is made of is something completely separate, not reducible, not supervenient upon, in some views, the physical. That's great. Really helpful, uh, Ben. So that introduces us to philosophy of mind and dualism. As Ben said, um, he mentioned uh, there's another episode on substance dualism. Um, so there's various topics that go between and cover both and appear in both discussions of substance dualism, property dualism, and some other parts of philosophy of mind. We're going to try and restrict ourselves to as, to as much as we can, otherwise this might be a two or three hour episode. I'll tell you in a moment what criticisms we're going to think about here. But before we do that, Dan, do you want to then tell us what property dualism is then? Yeah, so as Ben said, you know, dualism is this idea there are two things and not one thing. And the philosophy of mind sort of history, if you've listened to all of these podcasts and all these different things, you can see starts with this idea that there are, there are two things. The mind is something distinct from the body. And then this attempt from a physicalist to reduce that and say, no, it's not. It's something physical. There's only this one thing. And the, the point of sort of resistance throughout all of this conversation has been, but can you reduce all of these mental things to that one physical thing? Or is there something that sort of resists that that reduction, resists that characterization as something physical? And yet, if you've listened to our substance dualism episode, you'll see there are all kinds of problems with the idea of there being this new thing in the world, the mind, that's totally different than all this physical stuff that we do know exists, that we can see in all, all kinds of ways around the world. Everything else is physical. All unknown laws of physics seem to have this picture of there is just physical stuff. So there's this problem in philosophy of mind, which is the problem of philosophy of mind. How, how do we account for all this stuff that seems to be there if it can't be a separate substance and if it can't be completely reduced? And to my mind, property dualism is maybe more of a wild card than functionalism um, because it kind of comes in with a bit of a sort of Trump explanation to everything to say, right, we can sort of have the best of both worlds. We can have our cake and eat it too. Because it's essentially a physicalist position that says, you know, there is one thing in the world in terms of substance. So in terms of things that are ontologically independent and exist, you know, by themselves, substances, 
there is only physical stuff. That is true. We haven't got this mind that could exist without the body that could do its own thing, even if there was no physical stuff in the world. But there is a dualism of properties. So there are some properties of physical substances that are not the same as physical properties. So a physical substance can have all kinds of different properties. And some of these properties can't be reducible down to just being purely physical. So to explain or to understand that, you kind of know what I mean by a property. So a way of maybe thinking about it is, I don't know, I'm looking around me boringly like a philosopher, I see a table. So a table will um, have all kinds of different properties. Uh, you know, it's one substance, a table, but it's got a property of, you know, its solidity, its color, its height, these are all sort of different properties it has. And those properties are completely dependent upon the actual substance. So although this table has a property of a particular height, if I cut the legs off this table right now, that property might change. If the color of the table depends on it being in a certain light situation, or if I painted the table differently, the color would change. So the properties are of the table. They are definitely, um, you know, part of the table, but they are not um, ontologically independent. They, they, they completely depend on things in the substance of the table. And so in a way, what property dualism is going to try and say is maybe mental properties are like that too. They are properties that do depend on something else, uh, maybe emerge from something else, supervene on something else. But they, unlike things like um, physical properties, like height, for example, there's something that can't be explained purely physically. There's something that, that can't be reduced just to a pure physical explanation. So they're a kind of different category of property. So you might think of just thinking of the table again, you might think of the way like Locke talks about primary and secondary qualities as being very sort of different types of things. And you might go, oh, okay, we've got a type of property in a mental world, like, I don't know, the feeling of pain, that is maybe a different kind of property than a physical thing, which is like banging my toe against the, the corner of a table. But it's just one physical body, a physical thing, a physical brain that is experiencing those different properties of the the nerve endings tingling and the actual qualia feeling of what, of what pain is. And these are two different types of property that the one substance can have. So mental properties and physical properties. And property dualism is just that. There's a dualism of properties. But now we need some actual arguments to see if that's a decent view or not. That's great. Thanks, Dan. It's really helpful. So before we get onto the arguments... Um, we've just heard some really interesting words from you and from Ben, emergence and supervene or supervenience. Does one or other of you just want to explain those two terms for us, please? My understanding of emergence is like the word says, it is an emergent property is something that emerges. And the idea with something in terms of mental properties is like at a certain level of complexity, maybe this thing appears that's not there at a lower level of complexity so if you think about this like i don't know chemically and in terms of something like cookery you know there's a certain number of ingredients that do not taste a certain way separately by themselves but if you mix them around you add some heat that suddenly emerges this this flavor maybe even a new consistency of what that that food is that wasn't there before but was kind of there within the pieces when they you know mix in the right way and get to a certain level of complexity it's it's suddenly there so that is my understanding of emergent properties is a property that emerges uh supervenience it is the idea that you're essentially uh, if you supervene on something that you 
depend entirely on the, that thing. So essentially, just like with the, the properties I was talking about with the table, you know, those properties don't exist without that table. So if we burnt the table in a fire, the color, the height, uh, the solidity of the table wouldn't exist anymore because they supervene on it. So uh, the, the table is needed for, for those things to exist. So again, in the mind, it may be that something like a brain is what is required for uh, those emergent properties because they supervene on there being a physical brain uh, in some way. Uh, and if you're a functionalist, maybe it doesn't have to be a brain, but something has to be there for it to supervene on. That's great, Dan. Thank you. And students, so you might see something else written down. So imagine you've got higher level and lower level stuff. So if you're saying that uh, higher level stuff supervenes on lower level stuff, we say kind of two things. So if the, if the same lower level stuff exists, then the same higher level stuff has to exist if they're supervening. And similarly, um, as a corollary of that, if there's a change in the higher level stuff, it means there has to be a change in the lower level stuff. Um, great. It's really important to get those two things on the table. Thanks, Dan, because that will be important perhaps for some of our discussion later on. So we've explained philosophy of mind and dualism and property dualism and a couple of technical terms. Now let's get to some of the arguments and get some of the big players. So Mabel, do you want to explain David Chalmers and zombies for us, please? Absolutely. Um, so Chalmers is probably the first philosopher your your teacher will uh, bring up in this. He does an excellent TED talk where he describes his view on consciousness and he he talks about his desire to be a physicalist. I think when uh, Dan spoke of the different types of property there, it's quite interesting to note that Chalmers wants there to be one thing. He wants, uh, and in his own words in the TED Talk, he says, consciousness so simple you can write it on the back of a t-shirt. That's his analogy that he, he gives. But unfortunately, being philosophy, uh, he's not quite at that level yet. So we're going to uh, explain his views on consciousness and then uh, into his argument for philosophical zombies. So first off, when Chalmers explains consciousness, he's doing what all property dualists do. He is criticising the gaps left in physicalism. So if you think of it like a puzzle piece, Chalmers thinks there's a piece missing, and that piece is consciousness. So you've got all of the biological facts, all of the biological properties, all of the physical facts, all of the physical properties, but it doesn't form a complete picture. He thinks what is missing is the subjectivity of consciousness. He calls it what it's like to be. And he thinks that those kind of properties, going back to the word supervene, mental properties don't supervene on physical properties, or at least some don't supervene on physical properties. Uh, because he sees the mind uh, in two concepts. The first concept is the phenomenal concept of mind, which is your qualia. So we've spoken about qualia before and we did the functionalism podcast, we spoke of qualia, uh, but qualia or phenomenal mental states is just your subjective experience, what it feels like. So if you um, think right now, look around the room and you see something you really like, only you can experience that, only you can understand that. Um, you can try and explain it to others, but ultimately they will never know what it's like to be you in that moment experiencing that thing. And so when he talks of mental states, 
the first concept he talks of is this phenomenal concept. The second concept of mind that he talks of is a psychological concept. So concepts of psychology. And there he really links it to the kind of um, behaviorism. It, it makes sense. We can, uh, he describes that as the third person analysis of the mind. So he thinks there are two concepts of the mind. There's the third person analysis, like you have with behaviorism, like you have with functionalism, like you even have with mind brain type identity theory. But he describes that as an objective view on the mind. So you've got science and empiricism being a third person interpretation of the mind. And he says what is really missing from that, so mind brain type identity theory, functionalism, eliminative materialism, behaviorism, they miss the most important part of the mind. They miss what it's like to be you, the qualia. Uh, and that can only be known introspectively. So the ability to introspect is key for charmers and for charmers property dualism. When he talks about this then, he also brings in what is known as the easy problem of the mind-brain problem, because he identifies that there is a mind-brain problem. There's a a problem in modern thinking in terms of what the connection between the mind and brain are. And he has the easy problem. That's one that can be solved by physicalism. So to Chalmers, the easy problem is the problem of causation. It's the problem of function. It's the problem of you know, neuroscience. It's looking at this area in the brain lighting up and being able to tell kind of what someone's generally feeling. And the easy problem is this third person analysis, this psychological conceptual understanding of the mind. But what he cares about more, so the reason I kind of rushed over those is because what he cares about more is what he calls the hard mind brain problem. And that is this what it's like to be. So for Chalmers, what is really key is the idea of qualia, subjective experience and introspection. Okay, those those are your three key points that he thinks cannot be explained by anything other than yourself. And you can't even explain it to anyone other than you. It is very, very personal. And so when it comes to his property dualism and basically critiquing physicalism and having this missing puzzle piece, this is where he comes up with the philosophical zombies argument. Okay, so this is one of the specification um, argument to property dualism. And it is very much arched on conceivability. And we looked at conceivability in the substance dualism podcast, and it's what is logically conceivable is possible. So what you can conceive of without contradiction is possible. And the argument goes like this. So a world of philosophical zombies is conceivable. And what a philosophical zombie is, is it's a physical duplicate uh, and a functional duplicate that lacks qualia. So you've got to imagine, you know, a person standing with you who, you know, you drop something on their foot, they say, ow. You point at a spider, they jump. You know, the function is all the same. But the thing that separates you from a philosophical zombie is the fact that philosophical zombies lack qualia. They don't have the subjective experience. Uh, they don't have the phenomenal concept that goes with that psychological concept. So first premise is a world of philosophical zombies is conceivable. He says, if it's conceivable, then it is possible. So he says, there's a possible world where there is an exact physical functional duplicate to us, but there is no qualia in the world. And he says, if you can have a physical functional duplicate that lacks qualia, then there must be something more 
to you know consciousness to our mind than just the physical because if you can have the exact same physical but none of the qualia then there is something fundamentally missing from the physicalist account that's great thanks very much mabel and just to come in here so again students uh, metaphysics of mind is is a unit which uh, is great loads of really good juicy issues but a lot of the positions and arguments and ideas depend on each other so please go and listen to some of the other episodes as mabel said we discussed metaphysical possibility and explained it in the substance dualism episode to save time we're not going to do it again and we're just going to rely on you knowing what it is, but it's basically around conceivability and it gets into all sorts of interesting issues about substances and, and properties. So, so we've got the uh, zombies on the table, as it were. Ben, Dan, what do you think of Chalmers and the philosophical zombies argument in favour of property dualism? I would probably say that from what Mabel's been saying there, you can see the immediate allure of it. I think we talked similarly about this sort of stuff last week about how tempting a lot of dualism is because it captures something about us. And Chalmers is a brilliant, straightforward, humorous, intelligent writer. So he's he's a joy. He's one of the rare people that's a joy to read. Um, He's a really kind of fun philosopher to read. And he, he comes out with all these great phrases like, you know, how the how does the water of the brain create the wine of the mind, sort of the wine of consciousness and all this sort of stuff. So he's really got this way of capturing, and that argument has a way of capturing, this idea that if you can imagine a philosophical zombie, then what is it that makes you not a philosophical zombie? There's got to be this other thing. You're not a philosophical zombie and you know it. So what what is it about you that that is different? And so he ties into all those things we were talking about last episode with these kind of intuitions, these gut feelings that we have about ourselves that we want to try and explain. I think that the flaw in it is firstly tied in with all of that conceivability stuff. If Descartes had problems with conceivability, then so does Chalmers. He spends a lot of time defending it in his work, but it's always going to have that issue. And I think that the the big part if you want to make it different to the way that you look at Descartes and make it more charmersy, is that Mabel was right there when she said about supervenience, about, you know, we've talked about how property dualists are happy to kind of say that, you know, there, there might be supervenience of the, of the mental on the physical, but that doesn't mean it's identical with the physical. And Chalmers actually says, no, it doesn't even supervene. And his argument is that there's, there isn't any logical supervenience. That is, if a bunch of facts were the case about the physical world, it wouldn't necessitate in any other world the mental. You could have one without the other, which is different to a sort of contingent empirical supervenience that it might happen to be the case that in some universes the, the mind depends upon the body, but it doesn't mean that, the, that it would have to depend upon the body in any given universe and therefore therefore they must be a different kind of property which just happen to contingently be connected to bodies in some universes and the problem is i guess is the same with the descartes thing i don't really care what's happening in other universes i I care what's happening in this universe it helps me none that there may have been a universe when where things are different any more than you know to use similar sorts of arguments that people use the fact that there was a universe where i was a millionaire 
helps my bank account none in this universe. You know, so it, it doesn't really help me at all. So the I think that's the difficulty. He's come up with this idea that, yeah, logically speaking, these two things could be different. Um, yeah, fine. But does it really matter if actually to all intents and purposes, I can't actually change anything in my mind without changing something in my brain here and now? And I think that's where actually the easy problem of consciousness is actually way more interesting and useful because we're actually seeing how things work. Great. That's, uh, that's lovely, Ben. Dan, anything to add from you? Yeah, I, I'd like to maybe defend Chalmers a bit because I think that him and Descartes are both using conceivability type arguments and the spec criticisms of both of them are the same three, you know, is it conceivable? Is it metaphysically possible? Does it tell us anything about this real world? So it looks like it's the same argument in terms of like structurally, but I actually think there is a, a fundamental difference where Descartes is conceiving, he's conceiving what he can't possibly imagine. So this couldn't possibly be the case. Whereas Chalmers is asking us to imagine something that can be the case. And so I think Chalmers is actually starting from a place where he has more evidence for the conceiving that he is doing. And in his um, article, he actually acknowledges that the zombie argument is not the whole thing. You know, the zombie argument is half an argument. So by itself, it feels like a weak conceivability argument. But he talks very clearly about a logical structure of an argument, essentially, that if we can show that there is an epistemic gap in our understanding of the world, then that entails a possible ontological gap, which means that if there is something we can prove that says there is a big lack of of knowledge in one area where we have all the knowledge of, of a particular area, but we don't have knowledge of another thing. So we'll talk about that a bit more in a minute. But if we have that, then that suggests there might be this different existing thing as well. There's a gap of the things existing that that's why that would explain the epistemic gap. The zombie argument, actually, in my mind, and, and sort of how Chalmers states it, is there to show the possibility of this ontological gap. But then once you add in Frank Jackson's argument, which we're going to come to, which shows that there actually is possibly this epistemic gap. We're not just conceiving a possible world. We're conceiving something in this world that we know to be true based on an epistemic gap that feels like it exists in this world. And because it exists in this world in a way, and we're just saying, right, if that's true, then that means we can separate these two things in our conceptions. Whereas Descartes is saying you can't conceive, you, you can't separate things, which feels like that might just be because you don't understand how it works, if that makes sense. Whereas when you say, well, look, we have seen that there is this, this thing that is a gap in our understanding of things. But because of that gap, that suggests maybe there are two things. And can we conceive of them as two things? Yeah, we can. Then you're kind of doing something slightly different than Descartes. And I think it's a slightly stronger conceivability argument. But to fully understand exactly why, I think we need to, to know Frank Jackson's knowledge or, or Mary argument, because it is worth saying repeatedly because the spec says Jackson's argument, but Chalmers uses it as part of his argument. Right? He doesn't make the zombie argument in isolation. That's great. Thanks, Dan. Mabel, can I come to you as well? Because you introduced it, but so you haven't said what you think of it yet. So what do you think of it? Um, well, I don't think I'm quite as sympathetic as uh Dan to Chalmers. I mean, I very much agree with uh, Ben's point about Chalmers being, you know, one of, I would say one of the funniest philosophers. Have you guys seen his band? 
Yes. It's always, always <laughs> but I am... Um, I do really like the specific arguments given against his... So the very first point, uh, which is, you know, philosophical zombies may not be conceivable. Um, Daniel Dennett, who's a functionalist, and Wittgenstein, who you'll know from philosophy of language, uh, give two really good kind of responses to this, or or their work can be used uh, to do responses. So you've got uh, Daniel Dennett first being just because there aren't any obvious contradictions does not mean there are contradictions. So Daniel Dennett, as a functionalist for the purpose of uh, the argument he's making, he agrees with uh, Ben that it is the easy problem. It's the psychological concepts that really do matter. And he basically says, if you've got a functional duplicate, you've got a whole duplicate. You've got a holistic duplicate. You know, you can't have a functional duplicate that is not a complete duplicate. He thinks it just doesn't make sense um, to say, you know, if you drop something on their foot, they'll react the same, but they don't have the mental state. And then you've got Wittgenstein's critique of it saying that Chalmers uses language wrong. He describes philosophical zombies being kind of void of consciousness, but you've got the argument that, well, if they're void of consciousness... How could they be void? How could they be, um, so Chalmers might describe them as empty. Wittgenstein's argument applied to it would be, how can they be empty? If they have the full conscious experience from our third person perspective, how could they be void? How could they be empty? And I personally think that is a really good point because it's that fact of, we can think of having a philosophical zombie who would react the same way, behave the same way. But ultimately, there's nothing saying they don't have consciousness. There's nothing saying that they could act that way and lack consciousness. It just doesn't doesn't make sense. But I know, you know, Dan's point kind of said, when you use Mary's room and you don't just use zombies in isolation, that kind of goes away a bit. But I still think that's, that's very convincing for my own personal view. Okay, that's great. Thanks, Mabel. So let's leave Chalmers there, though. Students, you'll have heard different views there from our three guests. So we'll see you in the next part where we are going to talk about Frank Jackson's argument involving Mary, the colour scientist, and we'll also think about a few other issues with property dualism. And welcome back. Before we move into this segment, just to remind you, we've got loads of other episodes in all the topics of the AQA A-level philosophy specification and some of the topics as well, appearing in some of the religious studies specifications. Got many aspects and all aspects of ethics and moral philosophy, epistemology, philosophy of religion. And we're recording lots of Philosophy of Mind episodes in autumn 2023. In fact, this recording is very auspicious because with this recording, we've covered the whole of the AQA Philosophy of Mind specifications. And I'm here looking at Ben and Dan and Mabel on the screen. They've got hats. They've got balloons in the background of their rooms. Uh, It's a real party atmosphere. Um, Please check out our other episodes. But we're not going to stop there. So I hope in 2024... We'll be having a few special episodes 
are philosophers and topics not on the specification, but will which will nicely help you with some topics that are on the specification. So it'll be a nice kind of stretch for you. But um, before we do all of that, we better finish off property dualism. So as Dan was saying uh, before we hit the break, also a very important part of the discussions around property dualism is Frank Jackson's Mary argument. Dan, do you want to explain this for us, please? Yeah, so Mary uh, is a thought experiment uh, that Frank Jackson gives us. um, And it's an important one to establish this idea that there is something missing from our account. So we've said all along that, you know, we need a reason to think that there are mental properties and not just one thing and it's, you know, just a brain. And the, the reason is that there is something missing from a purely physicalist account. So Jackson sort of illustrates this really neatly by asking us to imagine a, a woman called Mary who is confined to a black and white room, has never experienced colour ever in their life, um, but is educated in their black and white room with black and white books, um, looking at all sorts of facts about physical world to the point that eventually Mary, though never seen colour, lives a, a black and white life being taught every single physical fact about the world. So Mary has complete physical knowledge about everything physical that exists in the world. And this is going to demonstrate that there. Uh, feels like there is an epistemic gap because although she has complete knowledge of the physical world Jackson asks us to imagine that one day she gets released from her black and white world and goes out into the the, the real world and finally sees color let's say a red strawberry or something red tends to be the color Jackson says when Mary who knows every single physical fact about the world including all the physical facts of colour and seeing colour and what the mental experience of colour would be, it feels that Mary would still learn something new when Mary actually experienced the colour red for herself. Because all the physical facts about the world, including all the physical facts about knowing and experiencing colour and what colour is and what it's like to see a red strawberry, does not seem to encapsulate the actual what it is likeness that qualia thing again, the feeling, the sensation, the experience of actually seeing colour and experiencing it. Which means if Mary learns something new when she leaves the black and white room and experiences colour for the first time, then there is some sort of knowledge that doesn't exist with all the physical knowledge of the world. There is something beyond that physical knowledge, something that is not the same as the physical knowledge. And this knowledge um, Jackson is suggesting suggests that there is you know, something that our physical picture doesn't quite incorporate. That must be a mental knowledge of some sort, the actual first-person subjective experience of what it's like to experience something, as opposed to just knowing the physical facts about it. So again, it's this idea that reduction can't happen, that you can have complete total physical knowledge and there'd be something missing. And it's that piece of the puzzle that I was arguing earlier, Chalmers argues, that sort of feeling that there is something new that Mary is learning there, that sort of evidence that the complete physical knowledge of the world is lacking something, is what then gives us maybe permission to start conceiving zombie worlds. Because we're essentially saying, well, we have all the physical knowledge in both worlds, but you can have this special ingredient that's missing from one of those worlds, that additional thing on top of all the physical knowledge, which is that 
first person, subjective, introspective, whatever you want to call it, qualia, what it's like, raw feels, etc. There is some mental property missing from that world. And we're allowed to do that because of Jackson's thought experiment. So if we think it works and you think Mary learns something new when she leaves that room, then it's quite a compelling argument that a purely physicalist reduction doesn't work and there needs to be something in addition, a second type of property, a mental property. That's great. Thanks very much for explaining that, Dan. Um, But there are some concerns and worries with Jackson's thought experiment. In fact, I should point out that uh, after he published it a little while later, he changed his mind (laughs) and thought that Mary wasn't gaining any new knowledge. Just not a great vote of confidence. Ben, I think you were going to explain some of the issues for us. Yeah, I I think the way to approach Jackson's argument is even just by thinking through the stuff that's on the spec, is to just think of it as if it were a really straightforward syllogism. He actually breaks it down to a single sentence pretty much at the start of the paper where he says something along the lines of there is nothing of a physical sort that could could explain the smell of a rose, therefore physicalism is false. If we develop that a bit more and say something along the lines of if Mary leaves the black-and-white room and learn something new when she sees colour, then physicalism is false. The second premise would then be Mary does gain new knowledge when she leaves the room, therefore physicalism is false. And with any argument, there's only these, we, you know, we did this when we looked at the key terminology stuff, there's only two ways an argument can be wrong, either its premises are false, or the premises could be true, but the conclusion could be false or badly supported or whatever it means. You don't have to accept the conclusion for some reason. And what a lot of the criticisms are trying to do is say that you could agree in principle with the premises, but you could still deny the conclusion that there's not going to be many people who think that Mary doesn't learn something new. She doesn't gain some knowledge. But if you go back to the topic on epistemology, the first topic, what is knowledge? We divided knowledge into three different types. There's ability knowledge, your ability to be able to do something knowledge how there's knowledge of sort of acquaintance knowledge so the fact that you have suppose the simplest way to put it in in these terms is the fact that you've been in the presence of something that you've perceived it for example and then the the third option is propositional knowledge so knowledge that so knowledge which can take the form of propositions which can be true or false and so on so if you imagine mary in the in this black and white room she gains all of the propositional knowledge that there is to know about physical facts. There isn't a physical fact that she doesn't know. Now, when she leaves the room, she comes into contact with something which is not covered by what she already knows, and therefore she gains new knowledge. So if you look at those first two premises, they appear to follow quite well. If she does gain new knowledge, then physicalism is false, and she does gain new knowledge. But notice there's an ambiguity here. There needs to be some disambiguation. What form of knowledge are we talking about in each premise? In the first premise, we're talking about propositional knowledge. But I could quite easily make the case that I agree with premise two. Mary does gain new knowledge, but she gains new acquaintance knowledge, that she simply becomes acquainted with something that she wasn't acquainted with before. And therefore, when you actually look at the argument, you could say, I agree that if she leaves and gains new propositional knowledge, then physicalism is false. And I agree that when she leaves, she gains new acquaintance knowledge. But that doesn't mean that I have to agree that physicalism is false because they're two different types of knowledge. 
There's no implication that what she's sort of coming into contact with in the second case is the same sort of knowledge as in the first, and therefore just the logic of the argument doesn't follow. Um, it's just a different kind of knowledge, which doesn't imply that it needed to be kind of the same sort of knowledge was, that was included in those physical facts that propositionally, but it doesn't mean that there is a new non-physical fact which is being introduced into the situation. And the same then goes for ability knowledge. If we say that, I've, I think maybe this is a slightly less compelling one, but well, when she leaves, she gains new knowledge, but it's not new propositional knowledge. It's new ability knowledge. She now has the ability to be able to differentiate between objects of different colors, for example. So she can tell the difference, where, you know, with the strawberry, for example, she can now tell the difference between a ripe strawberry and a non-ripe strawberry or whatever it might be. I mean, yes, she has gained new ability knowledge, but her gaining new ability knowledge doesn't mean that she's learned a new physical fact, that there's some new fact that she's been given, some new piece of propositional knowledge that she's been given. That one's probably maybe less compelling because it doesn't tap into actually the sort of stuff that Jackson wants to get across, which is that, well, there is... The point is, in the first place, that she is becoming acquainted with something, but he wants to say that it's something... She's acquainted with something mental rather than something physical. So in the second one, it's just a bit... You can see that it's not quite as strong. But this third option is actually to say, um, I don't disagree that she learns new knowledge. And we might even say that to some extent it is kind of propositional knowledge. But what she's effectively doing is learning, gaining some new knowledge, but without any new facts being presented to her. You can explain all you're basically doing is reconceptualizing in a new form the facts that you had previously. So you could almost think of it in a way of you know all the facts about the world. But maybe outside of the black and white room, people conceptualize things differently. And we do that regularly. We learn that the way in which we think and talk about things is thought and talked about differently by other people. But that doesn't mean we've added new entities to the world. It just means that we conceptualize them differently. I mean, it's not a perfect analogy, but, you know, kind of like talking about, you know, I know that there are such things as men and i know that there are such things as uh there's such thing as married uh being married and therefore being unmarried and therefore i know that there's this venn diagram this crossover of unmarried men i could find out later on that we have a we have a special word for that um we have a special word just designated to unmarried men i've learned some new information there that there are there are things called bachelors but there are no more new entities in the world that there were before I knew that information. There's still the same number of unmarried men in the world. I've just got a new way of conceptualizing it. What the criticism tries to say is that we can conceptualize things in a, in a phenomenological way or in a phenomenal way, that we have this new set of phenomenal concepts, which allow us to kind of reinterpret those facts. But each one of them is kind of doing the same thing. It's kind of just saying, I, we understand the example, and I agree that there's some new knowledge taking place, but it doesn't mean that it has to be knowledge of this new non-physical fact that you're kind of pointing towards. That's great. Really, really helpful, Ben. So as we did with uh, Chalmers, let's just throw things open a bit. So where are you all on Jackson's argument? Uh, what do you think about it? Well, I... I think Jackson's 
argument, despite the fact Jackson himself doesn't like it, I think does say something quite important. Jackson ends up rejecting it because essentially of that whole thing we talked about with zombies and whether what you think you can conceive is actually conceivable. And he sort of ends up looking at what we now know about psychological facts and the physical world and how we come to know certain sense information and decides that if Mary did have all the physical information, she would actually know already what it is like to see red in her black and white world. So he kind of says the premise doesn't work um, if we had all the physical facts. And I, and I probably agree to an extent that if we, if we really had all the physical facts, it might not work. And I think that's where conceivability arguments, uh, whether it's zombies or anything you're conceiving in any other kind of argument, fall down. Is if ever you say, well, what if we have all the facts about something? There's always a possibility there's new new things that we, we don't have. But I do think that what it's pointing to is that there is a there is something it is like to experience something. There is this sort of subjective experiential side of our understanding of the world that is not contained within uh, what we tend to call facts about the world, propositional knowledge about the world. And actually the objections that Ben just talked about, that, you know, show he, he was struggling a bit with ability and new propositional knowledge of the same old fact to make them feel as critical as they are because they're, they're, they, those criticisms maybe don't, don't work so well. But the one about acquaintance knowledge, I always feel is just basically saying, oh no, she didn't get new knowledge, she's got acquaintance knowledge. And what's acquaintance knowledge? It's first person introspective subjective i'm experiencing something knowledge it's what it is like to be acquainted if you're me i know what it's like to be me acquainted with that thing so you're basically saying oh mary doesn't experience this new thing like qualia she just has acquaintance knowledge which is also the same thing as qualia essentially so i think that's that sort of shows there is this thing there if you if you try and look for a new ability, the, the ability she has is the ability to know what it is like to experience red for the first time. And when you say the example of a new propositional knowledge sort of being known differently, like the bachelor example, it's a really nice example because it shows that there is sometimes a way of knowing something you already know, but in a new way. Except that's, oh, I know a new word for this thing. But if the new way she knows the old fact is the way of experiencing it firsthand, which is different than all of the other, every single other propositional fact that she knew before, then it feels like there's something quite important that was not included in that picture of all the propositional uh, knowledge in the world of physical facts. So I think that this idea that it points to there is something not included in that picture is really crucial. Now, it may well be that that thing could be understood through our total knowledge of the physical world. But I actually think Jackson's probably wrong because in Jackson's critique of his own argument, he basically talks about he thinks because of what we know about causal stuff in in terms of how physical bodies work, that if you understood all of that, you would have the information about what it is like. But the what it is likeness of that information still to me feels like something fundamentally different, even if it is causally related to some sort of physical fact about the world. It still seems to be something different, and that that captures quite nicely. Now, whether that thing is any use or it's important and it's its own property or or substance is another question. It might be a property, um, but the use of it as a property we, we can talk about in a bit. But um, yeah, I, I do think it's a strong argument in terms of pointing to an intuition that feels important. But I have said before, sometimes just because something points to intuition that feels important doesn't necessarily mean it is important.
Um, I I like Mary's room. Part of the reason I didn't want to jump in on the criticisms is because I don't like. Dan just explained, like Benjamin explained, I don't see so much why they are criticisms of it. I think the Mary's Room example is quite extreme because obviously you've got to imagine someone who's only ever seen Black and White. You always get, you know, that student who's like, but what if they look in the mirror? And you're like, okay, fine. Um, But I quite like that Frank Jackson also has, so the reason it's knowledge slash Mary's room is because Mary's room is like one example of the knowledge argument. He's also got Fred. And basically the idea of Fred is that he just sees a slightly different colour red. So he's got red one and red two. So he sees the red we experience, but then he also experiences a new red. And uh, I think that's, much easier for students to get in terms of, you know, seeing that extra colour red has a functional role. If he sorts the ripeness of tomatoes, which is the example given, you know, he knows which one's ripest because he's got this extra red. Nevertheless, he does experience something different when he sees the red. So it's got that functional, you know, role. But then there's also that what it's like to be Fred seeing that red too. So I, I really like the knowledge argument. I think it's, it's as Dan said, very intuitive. Great, thanks. Ben, anything to add? Yeah, I think a, a criticism that tends to come up in class, and it's one that I sometimes lean towards and then sometimes don't lean towards, I, it, it depends on the day you catch me, is that actually what, what's interesting both about Jackson's argument and Chalmers' argument is there's a degree to which you might kind of argue that it possibly begs the question a little bit in the way that it phrases things. So if you just go, there is a universe that is a a complete entire physical duplicate of this one, exactly physically identical, or there is somebody who knows all of the physical facts about the world, and then all you do is you just exclude these facts these facts that you want to say are non-physical, then all you're effectively doing is going, you know, imagine a world identical to this one, completely physically, but it doesn't have consciousness. You could be saying, but it doesn't have consciousness in the sense of try to ignore consciousness. Or you could be saying, except for this physical fact. Now, the fact that I've, you know, I could do exactly the same, say, imagine it's identical to this one, but it doesn't contain colour. And then just say, Therefore, colour is something completely separate from the physical world and it needs its own explanations and actually possibly it doesn't. Or, or you know, or, or some equivalent. Or, you know, um, let's say something like gases don't exist in that world. You know, that like you can imagine a world like this one, which is physically identical, but it doesn't contain gas. There you go. Therefore, gas is not a physical property. Um, and the same with the, the same with, with Mary. I think it probably works a little less well with the Mary argument. Again, for all the same reasons that we've, sort of talked about is because one it's trying to say you've literally got the same universe as this one and then you've got to kind of believe that it wouldn't have you've already got to believe that consciousness kind of isn't physical in order to make that argument work with the other one you are kind of saying it's not about whether or not the universe is identical or you're not we're not talking about mary's brain being identical to somebody who sees color or anything like that at all so there is that slight advantage, like you said, that intuition that we can kind of point to that say, but Mary does. There is something different about the kind of knowledge that Mary has, which seems significant. 
But I think that one of the things that, just as a, a slightly grim side issue, is one of the arguments perhaps in favour of physicalism is here is asking the question of what Mary's brain would be like when she left the room. So, for example, if you take kittens before they open their eyes and you place them in a tube and you make the tube either have horizontal stripes or vertical stripes inside black and white stripes, and you leave them in there while they're a kitten, so while their brain is developing, when you take them out of the tube, they then cannot scan and track objects which go against the lines in which they've which they've seen their whole lives to that point. So if they've only seen vertical stripes, they can't track objects going horizontally. They've basically lost seeing things horizontally. If Mary's been raised in a black and white room, maybe she won't be able to see red when she gets out. Maybe her brain won't have adapted well and she won't be able to see red. And then possibly then you've got this kind of lean towards physicalism that actually her brain kind of really matters here. And it makes us put the onus back onto that sort of thing. Thanks, all three of you. Interesting thoughts. Okay, let's move on, though, from Mary, the car scientist. We'll leave her with the strawberries. Um, So there's some other issues on the specification around epiphenomenalism, introspection, natural selection. So we'll go through some of those. There are some other things, such as categories, problem of the minds. But again, students, we covered those in the substance dualism episode and in order to make sure that each of these episodes wasn't two and a half hours long we thought we'd kind of mix and match and chop them up so if you want to find out about problem of the minds categories go to the substance dualism episode so let's get on to some of these issues then so Mabel I think you're going to take us through epiphenomenalism first excellent thank you good so in terms of when we looked at substance and property those are you know, what consciousness is, what the mind is. You know, substance is a distinct substance uh, property. It's a ontologically distinct property of the physical. When we talk about epiphenomenalism, we're not necessarily talking about what the mind is, but rather how it interacts. So it, it's a type of uh, dualism in the sense that you have a mental and you have a physical. There is that difference between the two. But epiphenomenalism is about how those two things interact. The the epi uh, meaning above, what it's basically saying at its core is that mental states come from physical states, but they have no causal role in the physical. A very good analogy to use in your exams is uh, Huxley's steam train analogy where he basically, so Huxley describes mental states like steam on a steam train. It's produced as a byproduct of the train's movement, but it plays no causal role in the running of the train. Okay, And that's how it works for epiphenomenalists. The mental is a byproduct. It exists in its own right. That is very important. But it is a byproduct of the physical that plays no causal role. Okay, so that's the the, uh, the basic of epiphenomenalism. I'm sure Ben and Dan will talk about it a bit and how it links to their specific issues. I was going to talk about uh, natural selection next as one of the issues with epiphenomenalism. 
So there are three separate specification issues in epiphenolism, and one of them is natural selection. So as you'll all know from biology and evolutionary biology, natural selection is the process of preferred inherited traits being passed on. So you've got evolution, which is adaptation over time. And in order to evolve, use natural selection. So uh, you or a species will inherit a trait that is beneficial for its survival. That trait will then be passed on. The issue for epiphenomenalism then is that if the mind plays no causal role, how can it have evolved, basically? So when, when we look at this, Frank Jackson talks about epiphenomenalism and the critiques come in with this kind of, if there is no causal role of the mind, if it plays no benefit, because if it cannot affect the biological, if it cannot affect the body, then it plays no benefit and it is no benefit to us to have it. And there is no benefit for our minds or, or our brains rather, sorry, uh, to develop it due to evolution. Okay, there's no natural selection at play for things that have no causal role. Now, Frank Jackson quite easily defends his position here by talking about polar bears. So I'm going to talk about that just to make it a bit easier to understand what we mean. So Frank Jackson's defense, because he's an epiphenomalist dualist, he talks about polar bears and how polar bears fur is really heavy and weighty. It affects their movement. And if anything, the weight of their fur is at detriment to their survival because they, they need more energy to move. However, he specifies that fur being heavy is a byproduct of that fur being thick and warm, which is necessary for survival. So Frank Jackson talks about that natural selection issue by saying perhaps, you know, consciousness was not the uh, thing that evolved, but our bigger brains. You know, we are homo sapiens. The sapien is the thinking aspect. He says that it's perhaps the mental that comes as a, as a byproduct to, eva uh, to developing and evolving bigger sapien brains. That's great. Thanks very much, Mabel. So Ben, Dan, do you want to go through some issues with uh, what Mabel's just said, please? Yeah. Uh, the, um, I suppose one of the things is to carry on with the causal side of this. So the fact that there, there's a lack of causation between our mental states, our conscious mental states, and not only physical states, but other mental states. So they're just kind of kind of free floating on their own, if you like, not really causing anything, is that it actually causes a big issue when you're trying to explain how it is that we gain knowledge of our own mental states. So if I were to ask anybody what their mental state was, so what they were thinking about or how they feel or if they remember something, then we tend to think of ourselves as making reference to some internal qualia or some sort of internal sensation or whatever it might be so if somebody's asking me whether i remember something i'm kind of going into my mind and i'm finding the memory and going yes i have that memory or if somebody says something like how are you feeling then i take a quick glance inside my own mind and go oh, i'm feeling a bit ropey or no i'm feeling fine i'm feeling you know feeling good 
So we've got this ability to form knowledge about our own mental states via introspection. So via a kind of inward facing consciousness, conscious awareness of our own consciousness. The argument goes, though, that if my feeling, my qualia of feeling happy, for example, doesn't do anything, it's just completely inert, it's just kind of floating there, then it not only can't cause a belief to happen, because a belief is a mental state and mental states can't cause other mental states. So my feeling of happiness couldn't cause a belief of happiness to come into existence. So we could do the alternative and say, well, it's not that it causes mental states directly. These are emerging out of the brain. So what does the brain looks at your mental state and it goes, ah, this mental state is, is the mental state of happiness. But that kind of mental state of happiness then feeds back down into the brain and tells the brain that it's happy. It tells you, you know, it says your mental state is happiness and sort of tells the brain. But it can't cause physical states either. It can't change brain states. So if these things are completely causally inert, they don't really do anything, then there's no way that a mental state could cause another mental state or even cause a brain state which has the side effect, the byproduct of being a mental state. So beliefs cannot be formed from introspection, which means we can never have introspective self-knowledge. Why is that a problem? Because we do. Because we do have introspective self-knowledge. So it must be false. Our mental states must have some further causal power. And therefore, if property dualism is correct, it will have to explain how it's not an epiphenomenalist version of this, um, a much more interactionist version of it. That's great. Thanks, Ben. Dan, have you got anything you want to add? Yeah, and before I do, I think it's worth just dwelling on that thing about interactionism, because what maybe we haven't said is why you might be an epiphenomenalist. And and there's a there's a big issue in substance dualism, which we looked at on that podcast of, you know, if mind and body, these two separate things completely different, how do they interact with, with each other? And one of the wonderful things of physicalism is you don't have that problem anymore. But what property dualism does by bringing in these mental properties that are totally not like physical properties is it ends up with having to have that problem again. If, if physical things are interacting with physical things, we understand that. That works great. But when you bring in a, a mental thing, even if it's a mental property, you, you could ask that question, well, how do they interact? You know, is there another problem of interaction to deal with? So in a way, epiphenomenalism comes as a response to that, saying, no, it doesn't matter. We don't have that problem. They don't interact in both directions. They just are a, an epiphenomena of the of the physical thing doing its thing and then there's this mental property and it has no causal interaction the other way and so we don't have that problem anymore it's it's all good so what these criticisms are doing is saying okay that does solve that problem but by sacrificing the causal ability of, of mental properties by making them essentially causally redundant in our lives what do we lose with that and and as ben said you know how does that actually map onto our experience, our actual experience of, of what we're doing? And that's kind of the final criticism is it's not just introspective self-knowledge that we think it feels like we are using our mental properties to develop new mental properties or knowledge of ourselves. But from from my perspective of me uh, as a person, as a thinking person with a mind, um, my mind seems to cause things all the time. So it causes things physically and it causes things psychologically. So, you know, I 
want to go play guitar after recording this podcast. So that's a want. That's a that's a mental property. It's a mental state, a desire. If I follow through on it, if I choose to, which also seems like a mental process, I get up and I go and pick up a guitar and I physically play a guitar. And when I'm playing that guitar, I think to myself, what song shall I play? And I pick one and I choose to, to put my fingers in certain places and move my hand in a certain rhythm. And all those thoughts seem to be producing something that sounds like music in the, in the physical world with me doing physical actions. And it feels, from my point of view, that I am causing all this physical stuff by thinking about it and choosing to do certain things. And I can do this, you know, mentally, like like Ben said, with, with introspective self-knowledge, but just other thoughts, like I might go, what shall I do tonight after this? Shall I play guitar? No, I don't I don't feel like playing the guitar. Uh, my, my cat's ill today. I'm going to spend some time with the cat. And when I think of that cat, I might start to feel sad, which is another sort of qualia, another mental state. And it feels like that that thought of my cat that I had caused this feeling of sadness that it's feeling ill and then i might go oh well you know maybe the medicine's working that we've given it and suddenly that thought makes me have a feeling of hope so from my perspective of of being a person with mental states it feels like my mind is causing things to happen all the time whether it's just a thought causing a thought or a a physical act you know i i chose to gesticulate as i spoke and my hands move it's amazing the way my mind seems to control things in my body and make things happen in my head. And every student listening to this has written a philosophy essay where they've sat there thinking thoughts and seen their hand move on the page, putting those thoughts into physical writing and making connections between thoughts. And they've gone through philosophy lessons where they've thought about an issue and changed their mind. And the thoughts seem to be doing things causally in the world. So if we accept this epiphenomenal idea that they're just epiphenomena and they don't have any causal power, it seems like we have to accept a a picture of mental life that's radically different from our actual everyday experience of what our mental life is. Not just in terms of self-knowledge, not just asking this question and why did it even evolve, but just like, is it even true in the slightest? Well, it doesn't seem to be. And the whole benefit of sort of property dualism that we've been talking about today is it seems to touch on this intuition that there's something important about the way we f- we actually feel about things that's missing from the physicalist picture. But if we accept this epiphenomenalist form of property dualism, we end up with a picture that doesn't feel at all like how our mental life actually feels. Thanks very much, Dan. Right. So I think we've covered everything we wanted to cover. So I'll just open things up to the three of you just briefly. So what do you think then about property dualism? Where where are you with it all? Anyone want to go first? Yeah, I think if you if you look at what I've been kind of feeding into what we're doing, you'll notice kind of two things. I've just been thinking about what do I actually think of property dualism? And there's two trends that I've got going on. First of all, there's the, yeah, but I don't know whether we've been too quick, whether we're just rushing into trying to come up with a non-physicalist explanation because we haven't got a physicalist explanation yet. And our understanding of the mind is, in terms of time, is it? I mean, we've made massive strides, but it is in its infancy. We, we haven't really been doing psychology I mean, what the first psychology departments in Europe were first opened in like the 1800s. Um, neuroscience in its current form has only been around for a very, very short amount of time. So we, we're kind of happy to not go straight for 
non-physical, metaphysical explanations of things about the rest of the universe now. We don't need vitalism. We don't need, you know, whatever it might, you know, um, kind of ideas of spirit and soul and, you know, it's why we chucked away substance dualism now because we don't need that anymore. But we just seem to be doing the same thing with properties perhaps. I don't know whether it's just a bit too quick considering the track record that we've got of chucking out non-physical explanations. But I think the other trend in what I've been saying is I've been using a lot of analogies. And the difficulty with analogies when talking about mind is because you always have to sort of caveat them with, I know this isn't a perfect analogy, but so if I want to explain how a zombie would work, you know, to somebody, I could say something along the lines of, or when you're looking at Chalmers' kind of defense against that idea of the lack of introspective self-knowledge, as long as the brain is aware of what's going on in the brain, the brain knows which bits are working. It's like it's like a computer program kind of checking in on itself, and the byproduct is merely what appears to the consciousness. So your mind does know that you feel happy because your brain is in the happy brain state, and the other bits of the brain are just paying attention to that. And the only analogy you can then do is say, so it's like your computer's running a check on itself, but you've got the monitor switched off. That seems to make sense. It's just saying, look, the user illusion has disappeared and you've just got the the hardware working. But you can now imagine that, that we're kind of with the monitor switched on, except it's an imperfect thing. The computer isn't aware of what's going on on the monitor. If the computer was watching the monitor and the computer understood itself only when the monitor was on, then you would have something which is analogous to consciousness. So actually saying, oh, it's like a computer running without the monitor on isn't because the monitor is a completely separate thing. Like it's so what property dualism is doing. So I'm, I'm while I'm not saying that I'm uh, kind of I think that it's false. I'm not yet convinced because I think that it's pointing at something good. I, f- I find it hard to just come up with perfect analogies to kind of explain a way that you don't need to worry about consciousness as this separate thing. But we are in our infancy in terms of exploring psychology and stuff like that and, and neuroscience. And we don't want to be too hasty in kind of like introducing these new properties, which we've got to go looking for necessarily. That's great. Thanks, Ben. Mabel, Dan, any thoughts from you? I kind of agree with what's been said throughout. I think it provides a nice medium. I think there are obviously some big issues with it. Um, some of my students said that when they were researching it, it was described as non-reductive physicalism or, you know, non-reductive monism and, you know, getting confused between that idea. And I think also with supervenience, it's very confusing, especially with epiphenomenalism, where you're being told that the mind is a byproduct. Therefore, it must supervene somehow. But at the same time, the basic premise of property dualism saying there must be some or at least, you know, all or at least some mental states that don't supervene. And it it's just very confusing in terms of, you know, Chalmers to Jackson, you get almost a completely different look at what, what this means. Chalmers being an interactionist, Jackson being an epiphenomenalist, you know, you've got really quite complex stuff going on behind what seems like very intuitive philosophy. I actually asked my my students today because we were we were talking about this we were introducing physicalism and we were talking about it. We were we were talking I asked them is there a hard problem of consciousness and half of them just went no there isn't. 
you know, the psychological concepts are all we need. They they were talking about how, you know, brain scans, you can see if someone's got a high, bigger amygdala or a better um, focused DMN. You know, there's a really good uh, mind explained Netflix series that go into like various things. So they've got all these keywords. You know, that changes. You know, if you've got a big amygdala, you'll be more emotional. If your DMN is less active, you'll be more selfless. You know, it's just we don't fully understand. And it's kind of like this idea of maybe it is all third person analysis. Uh, it's like Wittgenstein's beetles in the box. We can't explain the beetles. Nevertheless, the beetles are physical and they are in the box. You know, we can't explain consciousness. It doesn't mean consciousness is other. It doesn't mean it's it's not just purely subjective. It's It's, you know, you can make this analogy that it's just we don't have the language to talk about it, not so much that it's not a physical thing. That's great. Thanks, Mabel. Dan, uh, your thoughts? Yeah, I mean, I I think I am probably an epiphenomenalist property duelist by default, uh, sort of like a game of guess who, because I think the arguments for substance dualism are eliminated fairly early because I just don't think it it, it, it makes there's enough evidence to say there has to be a completely separate substance. But I think the complete reduction of sort of identity theory to something like mind is brain leaves too much out of the picture and it doesn't quite explain what what we're talking about when we talk about mind. The functionalists, you know, describe the mind as this sort of functional thing. But what is the thing that they say is the function that, that we're we're looking for? Well that's missing from the picture for me and that requires that missing gap of knowledge what what is the thing that it is like to be having a mental state that we're talking about we talk about mind behaviorism again sort of just talks about this external stuff and misses the internal stuff that i think seems quite important and i think the eliminativists are right that there's a lot of folk psychological explanation of what we're experiencing and to me what happens is when it comes to these property dualist arguments it points to the thing that is what I think is is sort of the crux of this issue is that it feels like we have a mind. It really does. Now, the churchlands and other eliminativists want to eliminate that and say, you know, you have these experiences, but your story's wrong and you don't have a mind. And I actually think they might be right about that. But what they're wrong about is trying to eliminate it because it kind of becomes incoherent when you say you do still have these experiences, your story's wrong. If the story we're telling is that we have these experiences. And that really is all the story is. And what the knowledge argument, what the zombie argument show is that we can understand this conceptually, that we experience this thing from a first person point of view that feels like thinking, feels like consciousness, that is not incorporated in all the physical stuff in the world. Where it gets tricky is where you go, well, what is that? How does it work? And that's where I think the eliminativism needs to come in. And we go, well, it is just a story we tell ourselves. It is a byproduct of this physical biological thing that we are and we can look actually you know psychology is young like you say but what does psychology show us and what does neuroscience show us it shows us that the human brain constantly tells stories makes up narratives tries to make sense of the unsensible chaos of the world frames everything with narrative devices and framing devices and it seems like we have got a framing device that we have this mind we have these thoughts their mind and they cause things and it would be completely unsurprising to find out that they are causally redundant because we know that there are definitely some thoughts that feel like they were thoughts like moral decisions that we've already made before we've got a rationale for making them and things like that according to some some research 
So why not assume that all of the thoughts we're having are a story we're telling ourselves? But why I don't go to complete elimination of that is because what do I mean by it's a story we tell ourselves? Again, it's there's a first person thinking thing happening. There's an experience of something that is what I will call a mind, which feels like an epiphenomena of, of whatever that is. There is this thing there. There is a property that's not just synapses, neurons, etc. Because although they might cause that that story, that that fantasy that we live in, they're not the same thing as it, and they don't fully reduce. So you're still left with something. I think ultimately, I'm kind of sympathetic to, to Colin McGinn's position about sort of mysterium, the idea that, you know, we are using the wrong tool to try and figure this out because the brain has evolved as a device to stay alive, to hunt for food, to reproduce, to do stuff. It hasn't necessarily evolved as a tool to solve deep philosophical problems. And so there's no guarantee that trying to think this one through will actually lead to an answer because we've assumed that we're using a tool that would lead to an answer when it's ill-equipped to do it, possibly, especially about itself. And so he just sort of says, we'll never know. But my feeling on that is we, we probably will never know entirely what it is, but we can make some pretty good inferences from what we have uh, with all the best neuroscience, all the best psychology, all the best philosophy. And that inference for me is we have this phenomenon, we feel it, we all know what we're talking about when we talk about minds, but it might not be real like most of the other things that we also share and talk about, like colours and experiences that we think are real, ethics, etc., that maybe aren't actual things. But it doesn't actually matter the actual things, because if we think they're real and we live in a world where we've established frameworks of their reality, then we can keep living in a mental world, even if it may be a fantasy mental world. So yeah, I'm a probably an epiphenomenalist, um, even though it makes me sad, but it can't make me sad. Thanks, Dan. So there you go, students. Take your pick from all of these different flawed uh, positions. Um, listen, we should, uh, I think, end things there and thank our guests for coming on. So, Mabel, thanks for appearing again. Thanks for having me. Uh, and Ben, thanks to you. Thank you. Thanks for having me. And Dan, lastly, thanks to you too. Lastly, thanks to you too. <laughs> Uh, and thanks to you for listening hope you enjoyed that episode and i hope you uh, check out lots of other episodes soon on philosophy gets schooled